Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Sanjay Krishnan, a PhD student with Ken Goldberg, at the AI lab at Berkeley. Sanjay, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for coming. So, yeah, uh, thank you for having me. The, yeah, tell me about the lab you work in first, and then I want to talk about the specific uh, PhD work you're working on right now. Yeah, so uh, I work in the uh, Berkeley Automation Lab, which is a part of the uh, Berkeley AI Research Group at, um, uh, at UC Berkeley. I work uh, under Professor Ken Goldberg. Now, uh, the, the lab does a lot of research on robot manipulation and specifically using AI to improve uh, robot manipulation, say, in grasping and surgery and in home robotics. Okay. Well, let, let's break down your specific area of research. What are you working on? And, you know, let's, let's step through those areas. Yeah, so I, I specifically work on surgical robotics. So I look at problems of uh, both analyzing the data that comes out of surgical robots. So that means um, when surgeons control these robots to do certain certain types of procedures, I look at analyzing the surgeon's uh, the surgeon's data and seeing what what kind of pieces can we uh, learn from this um, from from the data that comes out. Like, are the surgeons doing things as efficiently as possible? Are they are they making any mistakes? Can we take all that Can we take all that data and ultimately use that as um, as training data to help uh, provide some limited autonomy in uh, robotic surgery in the future. So uh, so I, I broadly work on a lot of problems related to surgical robotics, and this kind of intersects with a lot of learning and AI and computer vision. Well, okay, so I guess there's two ways to um, 
to approach it. One is what are the robots doing that's working and not working? And then what are the surgeons doing that's working and not working? And I would guess you go back and forth between the two to so the two can learn from each other, right? Yep, absolutely. So, so right now, uh, the the robot that we use is the Intuitive Surgical Da Vinci, uh, which is a surgical robot. It's being used in about 500,000 procedures a year worldwide. But uh, wow. this robot has no autonomy of its own. It's being 100% controlled by a human surgeon. Now, uh, you can really think about a surgeon using one of these surgical robots and directly controlling it for a procedure as kind of a video game with life and death consequences, right? You have a surgeon sitting at a mm. uh, one of these consoles for potentially four, five, six hours straight uh, doing doing this procedure. So there are all sorts of ergonomic challenges in doing this. And actually, if you, uh, if you read some of the literature, it often takes surgeons many, many proctored procedures before they get really familiar with how to control this robot because it's so foreign to them to have to uh, control this robot rather than having to use their own hands. Now, now, the robot has many has many uh, many benefit clinical benefits such as reduced hospital stay and reducing infection rates and so on. But it is really challenging for surgeons to actually use the particular hardware. Right now, what what we've been trying to do is to uh, kind of flip it on its head. Right, like what we've seen in um, in the automotive industry, what we've seen with smart buildings, is that um, a large large amount of data has been able to actually introduce some levels of limited autonomy, the same way that cars now increasingly have parking assist, lane assist, adaptive cruise control, and, and like some of the fancier cars have um, these, uh, these autopilot modes that you can drive on the highway. We want to do a very similar thing with robotic surgery. So some of these tedious, repetitive, like pretty much canned subroutines, can we actually automate them on surgical robot? Now, the challenge is that surgical robotics is kind of very different than other forms of robotics, like, say, a robot interacting with uh, household objects, right? Inside the body, almost everything is deformable. The, uh, the perception then means, like, taking in, taking in the information from, say, like the camera, much more challenging because there are fewer landmarks. Everything is, everything is pink inside the body. And uh, then there, there are all sorts of like sort of computational challenges in dealing with it, right? Uh, modeling deformable materials often requires a lot of complicate, complicated simulation and uh, so on. So, so that is, that's kind of what's hard about this. And uh, we've been doing several projects over the last six years in uh, taking very specific surgical subtasks. So usually these are inspired by training tasks that um, resident surgeons are used uh, resident surgeons are used to. So where they uh, where, res where surgical residents learn how to do say a certain skill, we try to say that can we actually do that training task on the robot? And we've been we've been looking at both the hardware and software challenges in doing that. Well, uh, yeah, it seems like you need to have a lot of tactile feedback as you're cutting through, you know, flesh or as you're pulling out something or pushing something or clamping something. I don't know if you call it haptic feedback, but it's... Yeah, yeah, so, so, that, so that, that, that is exactly what's making uh, surgery hard today with uh, surgical robots, because these robots actually have no tactile feedback. Uh, and this, right. this, has to do with, this has to do with the particular devices and the sterilization requirements of the, the, the types of sensors that you need for, um, for haptic feedback, right? So high-resolution force sensors are really expensive, so it's hard to dispose them. Low-resolution force sensors, uh, che cheaper ones, tend to be very sensitive to temperature changes and strain and stuff. And uh, when you start putting them in the body and they're in contact with liquids, they're, they're in, they have all sorts of temperature gradients, it becomes really unreliable to use. So uh, it's actually a huge challenge doing all of this without any tactile feedback. Now, what's interesting is 
What's interesting is human surgeons actually kind of learn how to work without tactile feedback. They kind of look at the visual, they look at, they start to learn visual cues and ultimately ground them in what they expect tactile forces to be. So we've had surgeons in, uh, in our lab using our demo setup and they've been trying out different tasks and they start telling us things like, Hey, I, I, I kind of feel that this is, this is wrong, right? It's like you really don't, right? You really are not getting that tactile feedback, but you've sort of conditioned your brain to take in the, uh, the visual information and kind of map them back to what you expect uh, tactile forces to be. Like, for example, if you're pulling on something, you start seeing a discoloration. You sort of mentally ground that in that I'm pulling a little bit too hard or so, so on. Mm. So what are the um, – you said there's a lot of clinical benefits from the Da Vinci machine. You know, I understand. What do you think is the next step? Like you said, limited or autonomy. What are some of the parts of a surgery that would be first to be um, automated, you know, like the initial cut to open up uh, the body or, you know, what areas of surgery are, are susceptible or like, you know, would be good candidates for this automation? Great. So we sort of see three sort of, uh, at least in our lab over the last six years, we've kind of highlighted three things that we think are well within the scope of current technology. Now, it's going to take a long time for this to get in clinical acceptance and so on. But there are three things that we sort of see are big limitations. And one of them is uh, one of them is tensioning tissue uh, a lot of, a lot of a lot of surgical surgery comes down to uh, applying tension or applying uh, applying force in just the right way so when you're cutting say a piece of fabric um, like at home you really have to hold that fabric tight while you're cutting it now if you think about it almost all cutting tasks inside the body are going to be the same way you have a deformable material that you're going to have to hold tight and stretch it out while you're cutting it so figuring out exactly how to apply tension is one of the key uh, key challenges now now you can always you can you can sort of imagine, and we've been we've worked on several projects along the lines in the in the lab of uh, one arm being autonomous and another arm being controlled by the by a surgeon, like one arm tensioning and one arm cutting. Mm. So the surgeon controls the cutting arm, whereas the uh, the system automatically figures out how to kind of like assist the surgeon, kind of pulling and uh, pushing the tissue in the right way to best assist the surgeon's cut. That's kind of one area. The other area that we see that is um, that is really promising is uh, camera movement. Now. Um, now, when, when surgeons do these kinds of surgeries, their field of view is really, really important because, like, they're, they're going in with one of these endoscopic cameras that has a really limited field of view, and it's kind of really zooming in high-res on what they're currently working on. And figuring out how to strategically move that camera while they're sort of doing a procedure is another thing that currently they have to stop what they're doing. Change change over to cam the camera movement mode on the robot. Move the camera reposition, and then kind of keep on going. Right. Uh, that's another place where we see that limited autonomy, uh, like autonomy, can really help. That you can have a robot that kind of learns how to move the camera automatically to best give the surgeon the best viewpoint, like pan, tilt, zoom, uh, while the uh, while the surgeon is kind of doing their procedure, kind of seamlessly, kind of like a surgical assistant. And finally, or maybe multiple sort of cameras at different resolutions, where you could say switch to you know, 3X or 10X or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. You could have multiple cameras, and you, it also allows you to potentially have more complicated cameras, right? Instead of having kind of a rigid camera that has really uh, well-defined kinematics because you're assuming that a human is going to move it, you could have kind of a snake-like camera that is a little bit more complicated and can, has sort of just harder to control, harder to reason about. That's kind of one of the benefits of autonomy. Uh, and and sort of the last, the last area that we sort of see another... Another win is is like really repetitive tasks, like things like sutures, right? Things that like uh, things that almost every procedure has. 
and it's pretty well defined what successful and not successful is. And uh, we'd like to be able to provide some sort of an interface like Suture along this line, for example. And and, um, and it just cuts down a lot of the tedium from these groups. So those are the kind of the three kinds of things. It's like assistive, things like um, things that require a complete change in workflow, like camera movement, and uh, things that are tedious. Um, any um, usefulness for augmented reality where you, let's say you're working on, I don't know, a kidney and you project onto the kidney, um, you know, where the blood vessels would be or, um, you know, where other stuff would be, anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I, absolutely. Sutures, I think that, yeah, absolutely. Yep, you know? I, absolutely. I think this is as much of a yeah. interface problem as it is an AI problem, right? Uh, for the time being, we're going to have to deal with some sort of a mixed, mixed control between a human and a robot where the robot's doing something, the human's doing something. And uh, these types of new interfaces, uh, whether it's augmented reality or whether it's uh, something more mundane, just like a heads-up display that just that just puts like information overlaid over the anatomy, would be, I think, really useful. And these are all the opportunities we have with the robot, right? These robots are loaded with sensors. They're basically these really powerful computers, and we can actually start integrating and fusing in a lot of different data that we have about the patient with those interfaces. Where does the, um, I mean, the AI component, I guess, would be critical you know, training, uh, let's say you're tensioning tissue, <clears throat> are you getting sensor feedback from the 500,000 procedures and feeding that in so that when you're training a robot to do tissue tensioning, it knows based on, you know, the feedback it's getting, oh, I'm tensioning too much, too fast, too slow, the tissue's not responding right, that kind of Yeah, yeah. So we, we've, uh, we, we basically look at two different ways of collecting data. One from sort of real surgeons, so that's kind of the expert demonstration stuff. So this is kind of my academic background. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time looking at how do we take the data that comes from expert surgeons and actually learn uh, executable policies on the real robot. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the challenges in doing this is oftentimes procedures have multiple different steps. They're sort of five or six different primitive motions that are sort of baked into one longer-term action, right? And how do you sort of tease apart and break apart that structure and break apart those, like, temporal abstractions, those, like, those five different steps? Uh, that's, been, that's been my research over the last six years, like figuring out algorithms to officially do that, figuring out models that allow you to uh, flexibly model some of these, uh, these complex sequential tasks. So that's, that's been one component, learning from expert data. We've also looked at uh, learning from simulators, for example. Uh, yeah, and this, this allows us to generate data, I guess, at like a much faster rate than collecting them from experts. So for the, with the tissue tensioning specifically, we looked at uh, actually building finite element simulators that allow us to simulate all possible deformations of the, of the tissue and what's the right tensioning strategy under that. And now the advantage of these simulators is that we can start applying these new techniques like deep reinforcement learning on the simulators themselves to learn really, really uh, interesting policies that uh, look at what the state of the deformation is and where what the next best move is and uh, and reason about things like that. So of the three <clears throat> things you described, which one do you think will happen first and on what time scale? Uh, that's, uh, I think that, that's that's a hard question. I'm not a policy person, and I think uh, making these uh, judgments is always tr is always tricky. Uh, I sort of I, I I think that the camera movement one is something that uh, should happen. That uh, there's there's sort of no. I, I I think there's there's really no bottleneck to it technologically. I think it's just something that needs to be really it needs to be really pushed. It's more, it's more of an engineering problem than than anything else. But I think that there is 
I guess, a whole policy factor around this that do you really want something like a surgical robot acting autonomously? And that's something that's sort of above my pay grade to decide. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. <clears throat> what do you guess would be the efficacy if uh, all three of these things were, were put into uh, certain kinds of operations? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. So how do you quantify... Uh, one of how do you quantify what limited autonomy is? Uh, so what I what I believe the win will be is that it'll make surgery a little bit more accessible. Right now, certain types of procedures you have to go to very specialized hospitals and people who really understand the procedure and have done this procedure. Now, if we can start kind of closing the gap between expert and novice surgeons on certain really complex procedures, because the automated control is a little bit more precise and we can reason about more complicated motions and so on, uh, that might that, that might allow like a wider reach of things. So it might not help you in any particular clinical outcome, but what it might do is it might like improve the access, it might make certain certain complex procedures much more accessible. That's that's kind of where I see the efficacy win that it would um, it would be in terms of accessibility or reducing the sort of the um, the barrier to entry on uh, using some of these surgical robots. Hmm. Um, what happens to the surgeons that use the Da Vinci robot over time? Do they do you see that they become better surgeons? Do they become worse? You know, if they go to procedures where they're using their hands, I mean, what does it do to them? Oh, I, I, so this, this, yeah, this, this is uh, this is this is really interesting. So, uh, so when when we've talked to surgeons and we've also gone down to the Intuitive Surgical Training Center, so ro- so surgeons really get in tune with the particular tools that they're using. That if you stop using the Da Vinci for a little bit of time, you start you start like forgetting how to use it. It's uh, it's really one of these things that the surgeon needs to be in sync with the the particular tools. And uh, we we do see that using the Da Vinci first requires a lot of practice. You need to get a lot of the stuff into muscle memory, and then um, if you're sort of off it for like a year or so, uh, you sort of need to relearn a little bit. It's, it's kind of like riding a bike that you you you, you sort of get you, you you get you get back to where you were you were faster, but it's uh, it's a really practice makes perfect kind of thing. It's not it's not a very intuitive uh, thing that just uh, that, that you just know or don't know from a textbook. But do the surgeons that use it do they only use that machine, or do they sometimes do surgery? I, I think the, I think everyone. I think I, that's it's a very good question. I don't actually know the answer. I think that it'll. I think that. My guess is every surgeon does a mix of everything. That they all they all know um, they all know how to use hand tools as well. But um, my my guess is that um, there are surgeons who specialize in robotic surgery and surgeons. I, I I I don't have any data. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, probably are. Hmm. Okay. Well, very interesting. Um, any other um, <clears throat> in addition to what you guys are working on, anything that uh, you see coming in the next you know maybe five or ten years that you think will really be a huge step change in surgery. If it comes out, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So, it, like, amazing. I, so I think that there's sort of two things that we've sort of seen that uh, I think I think will will slowly start uh, changing the way that uh, robotic surgery is done. First, uh, soft robots. Like I think that um, that when the when the manipulators that you're using, you're putting inside the body are softer and uh, not not made out of metal. Uh, these have a lot of interesting these have a lot of interesting like opportunities for example and navigating down blood vessels navigating down lung passages and so on i think that that, that would be really mm. that would be really interesting and be really interesting from a robotics perspective because it starts pushing the envelope of what we know how to control and plan for in robotics that's kind of one piece the other piece that we've also started seeing is that uh, a lot of industrial robotic companies have gotten more and more interested in robotic surgery and uh, those robots tend to be a lot more precise and especially for moving towards the direction of automation uh, bringing in people who 
basically automation is, is how they make a living into the into the field is actually really important. So we've uh, we've seen this at least in Europe that a, that a few industrial robotics companies, companies that traditionally worked with manufacturing assembly lines, have been trying to build surgical robotic hardware. I think that would be also a really uh, cool development. In the okay, very good. And then in in order for any of this to get into a clinical setting, what's the process like? How many years and how difficult is the vetting? Uh, I think I think it's very difficult, and it's kind of uh, it's a lot of a lot of it has to do with patents as well. So uh, I think that's why we sort of see that the uh, the Da Vinci uh, Intuitive Surgicals robot is kind of the big player, is because the vetting is really complicated, and the, and 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 getting getting approval, getting the patents is really thing really important. And I think it goes like procedure by procedure too. Uh, now, um, as a research lab, we don't really worry about that too much. Uh, we've been mostly focusing on the con the concept doing sort of the basic science understanding if these techniques work if these techniques what what parts of them need fixing and so on but uh, I think it's a very good long drawn out process yeah I figured it would all right well very good um <clears throat> Sandra any um I don't know if uh you'd want people contacting you or you know reaching out to you about your research but are there any resources for them to find out more about what you guys are working on to learn about more about oh yeah absolutely absolutely our uh our website, uh, our website is autolab.berkeley.edu. All of our contact information is there. We're always happy to take questions. We're always happy to, uh, to talk to people about our research. That's kind of part of our uh, part of our goal here at Berkeley. And uh, yeah, uh, the, no, nothing else from my end. Okay. Well, very good. I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, you know, it's really interesting. So uh, thank you for your insights. Yeah. 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 Thank. Thank you for your time. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here. Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies 
that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 